Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, you've called the Mojo Radio Show. We can't come to the phone right now because we're about to start the show. But please, wait for the tone and the boys will be with you shortly. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's show. Welcome to Season 6 on the Mojo Radio Show. If you are new to the show, well, that just means you've got five previous seasons you can scroll your way through if you are new to the show and you don't want to miss a thing on the mojo radio show i would go to itunes and just subscribe because then every monday morning you will get your daily dose of the show when i say dose i mean in the best possible way dose of the show to get you set for the week ahead uh time for the roll call let's go through the studio see if everybody's here ap Uh, hello. Sorry, what was that? Hello, that's... <laughs> uh, is that me? Did you mention me? AP, you're on. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was um, just patting the dog. <laughs> is that what they call it today? Uh, He's here in spirit. Okay. <laughs> oh, dear. That's going to be a long season. Uh, we can hear the the gaggling tones of Robbo on the panel there, mate. How you doing? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Um, very good this week, and uh, we should probably start to introduce our newest member of the program, Lola. Welcome this week. Hello, boys. <laughs> Those dulcet tones, eh? Those dulcet tones. I've, uh, speaking of which, I've got a question for you. Mm-hmm. What would Lola look like? Oh, do you know what? I tried to come up with an avatar of Lola when they were programming it because they asked me the same question and I couldn't really come up with one. You know, I, 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 I don't think she's down and dirty, and I don't think, but I don't think she's pristine and and you know ballerina girl either. Angelina Maybe, um, Jolie, Angelina Jolie, yeah, there you go, Angelina Jolie in um in Tomb, Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider, yeah, that that's probably what she looks like. She's a bit sassy, How's... but very feminine. How do you feel about that, Lola? Sounds good to me. That's my Lola. <laughs> Have you checked your email this morning, Mulder? No, why? Because I received something unsettling and I wondered if you'd gotten it too. The Mojo Mailbag. Now, we had an email during the week from Stan Peak. Do you remember Stan Peak being our guest on the show, the I Canadian loved legend? I our chat with Stan Peak. absolutely. Yeah, he's, um, he's a success coach mm. out of Canada. He was great and I'll put the link to Stan in the show notes. Uh, but Stan has written a new book with his friend Catherine Brownlee, who was also a guest on the show. But Stan wrote to me and said, book's out. Do you want, can I send you a copy to have a look at? I said, wait. And he's going to come on the show. So, yes, wait. A bit Elmer Fudd. Great. Elmer Fudd. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so look forward to seeing Stan. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, another chat with our, um, what did we call him? Maple, maple Gold or something? Maple Gold. Hmm. <laughs> we don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show. So there's no doubt 
that the way that we are working is changing. And we've had a number of guests on the show in the last couple of seasons talking about this. And those entering the workforce today, they reckon will have, over the time of their lifetime, 17 employers and five different careers. If you look at yours, you've been really? an audio engineer pretty much all your life. You have different bosses 30 years, yeah. Yeah, but you've had one, one kind of career. Yep. So with roles becoming more and more automated in every profession, whether it be law or doctors or manufacturing, and employees have to change what it means to be employed, and even the terminology is changing, the rise of freelancing, the gig economy means that independence and how people work is more and more a priority. And some would say it makes it less secure, but I would question that to say, in fact, does it make it more secure? Is it just different? So while you can't future-proof your job, you can future-proof your career. And Wiley have got a new book out by an author called Michelle Gibbings. It's called Career Leap. And the subhead, which was how to reinvent and liberate your career. I found this very interesting. So I said to Wiley, yep, send me the book. Let me have a look. I read the book pretty quickly because it's a good read, but it is, it's a very, I think it, I think at the start of the season, it's a really interesting read for us to consider, do we actually even have a career anymore? And if you look at your work of the future, how do you future-proof your own business? How do you future-proof what you'll be doing for work? So I wrote to Michelle and said, look, I like the book a lot. There's a lot of great stuff in there. And I've got to say, I think that this for leaders and particularly for parents who've got kids about to get into the workforce, this is a very, very important topic. So Michelle Gibbings, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Hello. It's exciting to be here. Hello. Uh, When somebody bumps into you, and ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? I hate that question. <laughs> <laughs> Straight out of the gates. Oh, mate, you're on a how window to, already, Gaz. <laughs> how to build a rapport. <laughs> uh, I, I often say to people, I think it's one of the, it is a hard thing to to describe. And I still remember when I first left corporate, because when I had a job in corporate, it was very easy to describe yeah. what I did. And I remember when I decided that I was going to do this and I was talking to my sister and she's a GP. You know, it's very easy to know what a GP does. And I told her and she said to me, straight face, she said, oh, wow, do people actually pay for that? So she she had no idea what I did. Um, So I always say to people, I help people really make sense of a complex changing world and equipping them so that they're ready for that. And, you know, I do that through a range of different techniques, facilitation, training programs. I do a lot of speaking events and executive coaching. And then, you know, the the writing that I do, which is almost what I do in my spare time because I love writing, the writing and the research is what sort of fuels all the insights that then feeds into the rest of that work. Well, let's talk about your writing. The book that I have in front of me is Career Leap. And the subhead says, how to reinvent and liberate your career. I guess even reading that, the the front cover, Michelle, what does liberating your career mean? I think it might mean different things to different people. For me, Mm. when I was thinking about the title, because you do agonize over the title, as in a book you would know, um, there's so many people who are trapped in 
jobs, careers they don't like, which I find really sad because I often think we have far more choice then we give ourselves credit for and often people walk away from that choice. And liberating your career is really understanding, not your passion, because I actually think passion is a bit of a myth, but really understanding what is your purpose? What do you want your life to be? And your purpose doesn't have to be this massive noble quest that you want to change the world. Your purpose could be, I want to raise a happy, healthy family. And so in the context of that purpose, what are then the choices you need to make about your career to enable you to do that? And so if I look at my life, I know that my purpose has shifted as I've evolved and as I've changed. And so with that, I've then made different career choices. And the liberation piece for me really connects into really this motto in terms of how I live my life. I've always said to people, I need freedom, freedom to choose, freedom to be who I need to be. And that also means freedom to be in a career where I can learn, I can be challenged, but more importantly, I can be me. You just mentioned in there that you think that passion is a myth. Can you expand on that? What I mean by that is I think there's this whole kind of wave of stuff that you see on social media, you know, choose a job you'll love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And I think that's bollocks because I love what I do, but there are still days where it's hard work. There are still days where you're thinking, what am I doing? I mean, I looked at yesterday, it was a Sunday and I worked all day because I was catching up on things. Now, would I have rather been outside doing something else on a Sunday? Absolutely. Choosing to do that for a whole raft of reasons that connect with my purpose and the work that I do. And this sense of chasing a passion, when you think about a passion, it can be fleeting. It can be, I'm jumping for this, I'm jumping to that, as opposed to, I'm really clear about where I want to get to and the choices I'm making to be able to help me there. Um, and so, if, you know, if you have a job that you love, that's great. But sometimes, if you're your purpose, you will do jobs that you don't really enjoy because you know that it's going to help you get to somewhere that you want to get to further down the track. And so if I go back through my corporate career, and I had some amazing jobs, but I also had some really, really tough gigs. And I'll often say to my coaching clients, you need to know the line that you cannot cross because when you're getting close to that, it's time to exit the organization. But sometimes you need to stay in a role because working in that role is giving you experience, it's giving you exposure, even though you're not enjoying the role. And it's about that that helps propel you to something that is greater than what you're currently in. So if we, if we are talking about your writing, you talk about future-proofing our career. How do we do that, Michelle? Because that's, that's such an interesting question for a lot of people because the whole career thing I suspect is changing a bit, which we'll get on to. How do we future-proof ourselves? I say to people, you can't future-proof your job because jobs change. Jobs come, jobs go. Um, and certainly not into the future, there are going to be jobs that exist that we don't even, we haven't even heard of. Future-proof of your uh, is this sense of who am I, what, what are my skills, what's the value that I offer? How do I keep refining that, keep shaping that? I'm looking at my industry and my profession and I'm seeing where it's going and how it's changing and how it's blurring. And by blurring, I mean we're often seeing professions where there's a blurring of professions between, you know, 
you might be a, um, a physiotherapist, but there's a change in that industry. And if you had learning and development qualifications, you're then able to move into the wellness space. And there's all of these kind of connections. And, you know, these days they often talk about a polymath. And so a polymath being someone who is an expert in multiple fields. And it's those polymaths that are really setting themselves up for the future because they understand deeply not just in one particular domain, but in multiple domains. And so when you're thinking about your career, if you're in a particular profession, look left, look to the right, see what's working on the fringes of the left and the right and bring that in because that's where the real change is going to be occurring that's going to set you up for that next gig. Yeah, it's good. That's gold. That's gold. Michelle, you mentioned purpose and... I reckon that is one of the biggest stumbling blocks. So when people come to that realisation that they measure their success not through dollars and cents and everything else or through the company goals, but they measure it through their own purpose in life, it's a really hard question for people. Tell me the one essential question. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That people should ask themselves to assist them in finding their own purpose. I think people want it. They just don't know how to find it. What's what's the one critical question they should ask? It is an iterative process, which is why I'm going to be that painful of, <laughs> of interviewees where I go, it's more than one question because it's actually about thinking, so who am I? What do I stand for? What are my interests? And where do I want my life to go? And then there's a whole raft of factors that also play into that in terms of your risk tolerance for change, how much money you have in the bank, how willing you are to learn and stretch yourself to really then come up with this sense of what I want my life to look like. Um, And I do think there's a bit of experimentation. So I know for me, I've always said I saw my life as an adventure. And I wanted to experiment and to always learn. And for me, the purpose that really drives what I do now is this challenge, this love of learning and this real sharing of knowledge. That was not my purpose when I was in my 20s. My purpose in my 20s was very much around I want to have a successful career. I want to still want to have this adventure, but I also want financial security. Um, whereas the financial security piece doesn't play into the choices that I'm making now. The front cover of the book says, get fit for the future of work. What 
In, in your mind, what does the future look like? What's next in the world of work for us? I One of the best pieces of research was research that was done by McKinsey's in early 2017. There's lots of stats out there that are scary around the whole, you know, the robot steal my job. Um, and there's even a website, willarobotstealmyjob.com. And so you can type <laughs> in and we'll give you what percentage that your job's going to be taken by a robot. Um, so what McKinsey's found is that with current available technology, only 5% of roles can be fully automated. But with current available technology, up to 60% of roles can have about 30 or up to 30% of those roles automated. So there is no doubt that automation, robotics, all of that kind of stuff is going to change the nature of the work that we do and so the types of jobs that are available. We also know that workplaces are changing in terms of, you know, the nature of the relationship between employer and employee. Now, that's been changing for the last 30-odd years. But as we move towards um, more people working in the so-called gig economy and moving from project to project as opposed to I have a full-time role, it really means that employees, it's almost like they stop seeing themselves as an employee and go, I'm the leader of my career and I'm going to work for multiple people. And so I need to take charge of what my skill set is. I need to develop myself. It's actually not the organization's responsibility to do that. I need to really actively manage what I do and where this goes some people, that's a really big shift because in an organisation, it's like, well, I work for an organisation um, and what they do is they help train me, they skill me up for all the roles, I might move around and, yes, I might change organisations, but even when I do that, it's still in a fairly similar construct. So to say to people, actually now, it's all about value and it's a value exchange. You turn up and you deliver value and in return you get money. It comes that feels very transactional for some people. But if you get down to the brass syntax, that's exactly what the working relationship is. And yes, organizations can do amazing things around culture and leadership and employee engagement, but they're doing it to actually make sure that that value exchange works um, and that they're having happy, harmonious, harmonious work environments because they know that's how you get the best out of people. So in the book, Michelle, you wrote that many of us are ill-prepared to take on different jobs in the future, like AI, VR, AR, 3D. And there's a quote in there about the CSIRO saying half the jobs are at risk of automation or computerization. If somebody hears this and goes, wow, I need to get in the front end of this, how, what do you suggest people do to start to say, well, I am ill-prepared, but I want to be prepared? What are the stepping stones for you? is look at your industry and understand how your industry and profession is changing because the impacts will be different. If you're in a highly manual environment, the impacts of AI at this point are far greater. If you're in that much more service-based industry where it's really EQ-driven in terms of the emotional connections, um, those types of roles are going to be less impacted. So understand the impact into your industry and profession and then understand your skill set. So once you've got a sense of where things are going, look at your skills and go, okay, out of the skills that I have and where the industry and profession is going, how much of the skills that I've currently got are 
directly transferable, as in I pick them up, I take them with me, and they will still be relevant and useful, versus skills where you might need to adapt, modify them in some ways, and learn something new to actually make them more applicable. And then there may be some skills that you have that are totally obsolete, that you go, actually, I don't need to use those anymore. So understand that. And I, it's also really important to broaden your network. And the reason where your network plays a role in all of this is if you're, for example, an engineer and you've only ever worked in the mining sector, go and meet people who work in different industries to you. They go and work in the tech sector because what you'll see is by talking to different people, you'll get ideas about roles that you've never even heard of. And you'll start to see, oh, wow, I've got this whole skill set that could actually be used in a completely different industry in a different way. I just didn't even realize that those opportunities existed. So you need to build a network that is broad and both deep and go beyond what would you would traditionally see as the people that I need to have in my network. It's really interesting, isn't it? I, do you think some of the things you just said, Michelle, and based on the book and even the title of the book, do you think we're going to have a career anymore? Like, does that, are the new generations coming through and thinking of a career? I mean, is that word even in their vocabulary? Oh, I think it would still be in their vocabulary. I think what the difference is, is, you know, in the past people used to think about what's the job I have? Whereas when you think about a career, you are thinking longer term and you're thinking about all the building blocks that go into habit. Um, I was looking at some stats the other day when they talk about side hustles. So people having multiple jobs and jobs on the side, Um, certainly in the US, you're looking at the younger generations, you know, more than 50% of the younger generations, they have side hustles. And so they'll have potentially a full-time gig, but something else that they're doing on the side that is connected into the tech sector or relying on digital platforms to help them make extra money. And so they're running these dual tracks of careers, which is very different. You know, I'm in my late forties. So it's very different to what people in my generation were doing because it was like, well, you went to, you went up through the food chain, but you had one job. You didn't really have jobs on the side. So this whole sense of you might have multiple streams of work coming in at any one time, which means that sense of a portfolio career takes on new meaning. Whereas in my generation, a portfolio career was what you talked about when directors. You know what 95% of those side hustles are, don't you, Gary? Podcasting. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. maybe we should get onto that. (laughs) We're hustling, but uh, it's just as interesting, you know, Michelle, there's a guy called Jesse Itzler and he wrote a very popular book called Living with the Seal and he's now done a number of books And he does a number of things and he's married to a lady called Sarah Blakely who is one of the first self-made billionaire females in the world. She started Spanx. Very, very well. Yeah. One of the things that he talks about, which I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, he said that he and people like him tend to talk more about creating a portfolio of work that excites you as opposed to building a career. And it kind of ties into what you just said because I'm just not sure that the young guys and girls around the place are thinking of a career. They're more thinking about kind of a gig that excites them and how that steps into the next gig that excites them. Do you think it's more about a portfolio than a career now? I think absolutely people think portfolio 
in terms of which are the bits of the building blocks that I'm interested in, I would argue they're still developing a career mm. because it's still leading to something and you're building this body of knowledge that all adds to whatever it is that becomes that next thing that you do. I think the long term, you know, do I have a 10-year career plan? To me, that's been out the window for years because it's too hard to think in 10-year blocks. We don't know what's going to necessarily be happening five years. So I think it's that longer-term planning that's harder. But I I also think there's a danger if you just think short-term because if you go, I'm just going to do what feels good for now and I'm just going to have this 12-month kind of planning horizon, you potentially miss out on opportunities and it can limit you. So once again, it's about thinking about the context in which you want to live your life and what are the choices that you want to make to help enable you to do that. I know when I left corporate five years ago to do what I'm doing now. And the, the business has absolutely evolved and will continue to evolve. So it doesn't stand still, but this is what I will do until I retire. So there'll be a number of iterations to it, but I know that when I'm in my late sixties, I can still be doing this. And that was one of the reasons for starting it was because it gave me a whole lot of flexibility to do a lot of travel, do some work, do some more travel, do some learning. It built into the lifestyle of what it is that my husband and I want when we both retire. Being an audio engineer, I'm fully expecting that my ears won't stand up to a career until my seventies. So I'm actually talking to Arnett's at the moment about becoming chief Tim Tam taster. I'm sure there's a huge career opportunity for that. I, well, you know. Do you, do you have to go off? Do you have to go offshore? <laughs> uh, possibly. Maybe you could become an ambassador and sort of travel to Europe and the states and maybe sell Tim Tams into those markets as well. Mind you, it would take some guts, and that's one area that you are qualified for. <laughs> anyway, um, Michelle, what's the gig economy? You, you've spoken about it in the book, and it's a term we hear a lot about. What's a gig economy, and how's it going to impact? our current workforce? So the gig economy are people who move from short-term project to short-term project. And the stats vary. It is actually one of those um, areas of the economy that is hard to pin down to say how much of it is this. And when I was doing research, it was, you know, about 30% of the Australian workforce is in the gig economy in the next five to 10 years. It's going to be another 10 to 40%. Um, in the US, I think the figures are 40 to 50%. Um, and then you might look at other data that says actually those figures are a bit hyperinflated. But the gig economy, and if you think about all the sites like um, – Freelancer, Upwork, 99designs, all, all of those technology platforms that enable you to access people who work for themselves and work from gig to gig. Some of them might have multiple clients that are regular clients. So I know for me, I have an assistant. She is you know, notionally called a virtual assistant because she doesn't work in my office. She lives around the corner from me, so it is actually very handy. Um, but she works for me, but she also has other clients. That works for her. It also works for me. So she would technically be part of the gig economy because she is not a permanent employee of my organisation, even though she probably spends 50% of her time working for me. Um, so 
the gig economy creates a lot of opportunities. I think the challenge, if you read a lot of the um, stuff that's been in the press recently about people who are working in that space, but they're working for an organisation almost 100% of the time and they have to provide their own equipment, their own uniforms. There's, you know, debates around, well, are they really contractors versus permanent employees? And so there's this sense that the workplace laws haven't quite caught up with how the workplace is working in reality. And so you've got people who are classified as not employees, but in fact, they're actually employees. With all these changes you're seeing and noticing around the place, Michelle, there's changes in technology and the changes in the way we work with WeWork and those sorts of things impacting even the space we work in and the the communities we work in. In your mind, what do you think the core competencies are that will be in most demands, say five years time, 2022, 23? What do you think is the stuff that really is going to be in demand? So the World Economic Forum every five to 10 years comes out with these are the competencies that matter. Mm. And there is a difference between a competency and a skill. So a skill is I know how to type. I know how to do an Excel spreadsheet. The competencies are those learned, almost behavioural traits that underpin how you do your role. And the World Economic Forum have, you know, the key competencies being things like cognitive flexibility, uh, which is your ability to think differently, your ability to also problem solve, emotional intelligence, your ability to negotiate. So if you think about it, they're all those skills that require connection, understanding of self, understanding of others, your ability to read a room, your ability to be able to have empathy, compassion. And so, you know, what in the past was called soft skills are really becoming the things that you need that will differentiate you in terms of being able to have a successful, sustainable, long-term career. Good. And you just mentioned a term you said you need to know how to do something and the one of the things that I've heard you say that you know how to do is to ask a question when you think about asking a question and obviously you are good at it what do you think sits behind that because it seems curiosity is something that is a little lacking in society today because of the speed and distractions and so on but you you know how to ask a question How does one go about asking a question? Get interested in other people. Uh, As soon as you start getting interested, intrigued, you have to ask a question. Um, It's when you think you know everything that you stop asking. And I always say to people, the day you think you're the smartest person in the room, that's the day you need to find another room because you've stopped learning. And as soon as you've stopped learning, you're one step closer to obsolescence. And so being comfortable to be challenged. And I think that one of the biggest dangers, and we're going slightly off topic here, but it is something that I'm really, I think is really important, is, you know, if you look at the way social media platforms are constructed, you like something, the algorithms therefore go, oh, you like that, so we're going to keep showing you that. Um, that's not necessarily good for you being challenged about how you think and how you see the world because it's really important to read things that you disagree with to then be able to say, why do I disagree with this? Why is this making me react like this? And what does that mean for how I view the world? 
because we all construct our version of reality. We all construct how we see the world. And it's important to have people around you who challenge you so that you can step back and go, well, my version of this doesn't necessarily make it real. It's just my perspective. And there's going to be multiple perspectives on that. And I think being open to all of those different opinions, that's an important part of also managing your career. Because when you accept difference, when you go, actually, that person's thinking differently to me. And that's a good thing. Let's uncover why you're likely to make better decisions. If I run a thread through a couple of things you just said then, you talked about having people around you and then you started that reply talking about learning. You actually grew up in a very academic family. And I'm curious to know what impact did that environment as a kid have on your own thirst for learning today? Oh, huge. Um, And partially because, and I don't know whether I mentioned this in my first book, but certainly um, I was the youngest, the youngest of four, and I was not as smart as my siblings. And so there was, you know, every teacher at school, oh, we've just had your sister. Are you as smart as she is? Oh, gee, she's bright. Uh, And I wasn't. No matter how hard I tried, I would never have academically outpaced my sister um, or my brother or my other sister. And so for me, I have this inbuilt um, mechanism, not just around learning, but working hard and trying hard. And so I've always said to people, I'm not the smartest kid in the class, but the hardest working. And so for me, the hard work has always paid off. And that academic environment where you're, you know, you're encouraged to love learning plays into me knowing that I've got choices because I was, you know, mum and dad always said our role in life is to help raise you to be good people but also to encourage you to learn and to think differently. So I grew up in a family where we were encouraged to think differently. My father's got a very strong passion for social justice and so we grew up knowing that we were very lucky in terms of the environment that we had and as a consequence of that we had an obligation to make sure that we helped other people who didn't have the same environment as us. If we think back you know when we were kids Michelle that when I was growing up I was told that you should get a a job and stay in it for a decade because that showed loyalty. And that was back then, that was kind of, you know, what you refer to in your speaking in the book, you talk about key career parameters. And they're probably the old school key parameters Mm. where you got a job, you showed loyalty and your career might have three jobs, but you stayed in there for eight years or a decade. And if you only stayed for 12 months or 18 months, it's like, well, what went wrong? What, what, with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What's replacing the old key parameters of which you speak? What are the new key parameters now in a career? So it goes back to the conversation that we're having before around portfolio, this sense that you are often managing multiple streams of work, that you're not necessarily just taking the job on offer. In many respects, you're the job maker. You're creating the job because you're creating not just the environment, but you're leveraging platforms that you can use to create a market for whatever it is that you are able to sell. Um, And that you are not seeing your career as this linear progression, but it is much more this series of a sequence of different activities where I'm constantly scanning, searching, looking to then work out, well, what comes next? And so it does, you know, I talk in the book about the career reinvention cycle, but there is this sense of a cycle because you get to a point where you go, that's great. I've done this. I've nailed it. I've achieved everything in this field that I want to achieve. Well, now what's next? How do I take that applied into a different environment? How do I continue to reshape and refine so that I'm constantly making sure that I've got currency because the currency, which is the value that you're delivering, what's valued now what's versus what's valued in 10 years' time will be quite different. If I take an off-ramp here to a quote in the book, Michelle, there was a quote from Confucius, and Robbo is a, is a massive fan of Confucius. He's always quoting Confucius. I'm but- always confused by <laughs> Confucius as well. <laughs> The quote was, the way out is through the door. Why is it that no one will use this method? When I read that quote, what it made me think, and the question I wanted to ask you is, why are there so many people in jobs they don't love, working for leaders they don't respect, yet they won't take the door out? Why is it so scary to take the leap? It depends on a number of different factors, but typically, you've used the word, it's fear. I know this, it's easier to stay here, I don't like it, but better than ever, you know, it's a whole raft of that. You know, I know when I left corporate to set the business up, and there's a risk when you set up a business, and I didn't know whether this would be successful, and certainly my husband and I had to look at the finances and go, okay, well, what do we need to scale back to make sure we've got capacity for this? But I had people who said to me, oh, wow, I can't believe you've done that. And then secondly, how can you afford to do it? Because they had a lifestyle where, you know, and I worked in corporate, so, you know, often people were earning big income, but they didn't save. And I've always been a saver, not a spender. Um, and that's part of my motto around the whole thing around freedom. And so, I, you know, I'll talk about in the book how you need to have FU money because it doesn't mean you're a millionaire, but if you've got money in the bank and you're not living hand to mouth to the extent that you can, because I know that there's some people who, you know, things are a real stroll, but there's also people who spend a lot of money on things that they don't need to spend money on. And so they're living beyond or to their means as opposed to saving. And when you've actually got money in the bank, it gives you options. But what I typically find when I'm working with people through career transition, it's fear, but it's also the expectations. You know, I was doing some work a couple of years ago with a guy and he wanted to move to a a three-day-a-week role and that was because his wife had a step-up role and he was doing the right thing for the family. You know, his wife was going to be in a bigger role so he needed to be the one that managed 
the expectations at home, but the he got from other people around him, including headhunters, oh, you're ruining your career, you'll never get a big corporate job again, can't believe you're doing this, because it was the expectation that as a male, he needed to have the big role in the family. Um, And so if you can manage your own expectations and those of others, or just ignore other people's expectations. So I always say to people, focus on what you could do, not what you should do because that can make the difference. Is the expectations a big thing, Michelle? I mean, that's something you sort of covered or referred to in the book. Just talk us through that. Is, is comparison kind of a big deterrent for people where they, they won't make the career leap because they're worried about what others think or they compare themselves to other people who are earning more, driving more, living more, living large? How will it look if I do this? Even though I want to go to the gig that I want to go to, it may not look as good for the others. Is that... Is that really a deterrent? People are influenced by a whole raft of different factors, but there's no doubt for many people, not everybody, um, so I'm always cautious of generalisations, but, you know, there are many people who do what, you know, it's natural to worry what people think. And so if you're in a certain career and then you're going to do something completely different, it does take a shift, um, both in terms of how you see yourself and how other people see you, because so much of our identity is tied up with our, with the work that we do. And if you think about it, often if you're in a social setting and you're meeting someone for the first time, one of the, apart from the hi, how are you and who are you, often the second or third question is, what do you do? Um, and so it's a, it's almost like the social etiquette attached to the, to the role that you do. And so when you're really connected with your work, um, and that identity, and often you don't realise how connected to that identity you are until you seek to shift it. We are at a period of the year where the year 12 students are doing HSC, which is in Australia, our final exams to set them up for university and so on. If there is a kid in year 12, Michelle, about to do and finish their HSC, with all we've talked about with careers, the workforce, for the future, what should they really be thinking about to future-proof themselves? I'd say two things. One, get comfortable with change and work on the skills that you need, and these are internal behavioural resilience skills, to be adaptable because you are going to be required to adapt, not just once, but multiple, multiple, multiple times. So get comfortable working in a fluid, changing, complex, ambiguous environment. And then secondly, to support the adaptability, love learning. If you can fall in love with learning, it's it's just so much easier because you see something that's new and rather than going, oh, I don't know what to do, you go, oh, wow, I haven't done that before. How cool is that? Let's give it a crack. It, it, you're just flipping how you see it. As, so rather than seeing learning as a chore, you see it as something that's fun. I've got a just, I'm very conscious of your time because I know how much you've got going on. Just a question, this is something that Robbo has been really accelerating. His work and learning in this year is LinkedIn. And it's probably remiss of us not to cover off LinkedIn in this conversation about careers. Exactly how important is LinkedIn in today's day and age, has LinkedIn actually replaced the resume? And if it is important, what's the number one consideration for us when using LinkedIn? 
So, yes, it's very important. And for some organisations, it has replaced the resume. I know some organisations that when they recruit, they go directly to LinkedIn and they say to people, don't send us a CV, just send us your LinkedIn link and we'll go directly to that. Um, So, you need to treat your LinkedIn profile as a professional profile. So, that means professional photograph um, that's fit for purpose. So, if you're a party planner, it might be appropriate to have a photograph of you in a social setting. But for most professions, it's not. So we don't want the photograph of you with the fascinator um, or what is clearly your wedding photograph um, where you've just cropped out your partner. So you see some photographs that are on LinkedIn and you think, what was that person thinking? So it is professional. Um, Be clear around your value proposition because that's the piece that people will go to to first. Your headline, that is, this is the who I am, that does not have to be your work title. That's a great space to be able to say, this is what I'm about. And so use that to sell yourself because really LinkedIn is a platform to sell who you are and what you stand for, but it's also a fantastic way to share ideas, share knowledge and build a connection with people that you're really interested in building relationships with. So I also see LinkedIn as a bit like an online business card holder. If I meet with someone, I will connect with them on LinkedIn because the brilliant thing is that business card becomes very, very dated very quickly. And there are some people who say, you know, business cards are obsolete. They can be handy in certain circumstances. But, you know, people move around so quickly. But if you've got connection with them on LinkedIn, you know where they've gone. And so you never lose that connection. One thing that annoys me, I mean, I've been self-employed now since 1997, so it probably doesn't directly affect me. But one thing I look at for my kids when I see recruitment at advertisements is this whole idea of please send us your salary expectations. Now, when when I was working, it was always the other way around. It's like, what well, what is the job worth to you? What are you prepared to pay me? And, and the thing that annoys me is that you sort of, you may put down a salary expectation that is maybe out of their ballpark, but you're willing to negotiate because you're always going to go to that higher part. If, if you're asking me how much I want, I'm not going to give you my lowest. I'm going to give you my highest. And I guess the question that comes off is, the, the back of that is, is there some way around that? Have you seen any, anyone do anything clever? You know how do we how do we circumnavigate that sort of I guess what has become a bean counter's way of of sort of culling people from the from the herd when it comes to recruiting. Yeah, look, interesting question. I probably am not going to be all that insightful um, because what I would say is if I go back to my days when I was recruiting. We, you know, we would give a range um, and say this is the sort of ballpark that we're interested in, but we actually then look at the CV because the actual offer you were making was based on the calibre of the person who's sitting in front of you um, and what they're currently earning. And these days, I always say to people, never lie about your salary because it's really easy these days to, to find out what you're actually earning and all that kind of stuff. So you can't inflate your salary, whereas I think in years gone by, people would inflate their salary. Um And it also shows that it's really important for you to understand what are the going rates in your industry. And there's certainly, you know, organisations like Hayes and others do benchmarking. Um, And so before you're ever putting a figure out there, um, particularly benchmark, but I think what's really hard about that, if you're new to the industry, if you're a a graduate or you're a first-time school leaver, you potentially wouldn't even know what that is. So to me, that becomes a little bit unfair if that's going to be the block that actually stops you getting that role. Michelle, just to 
finish this up, one of the chapters in the book, you talk about a career identity. What What is a career identity? Because identity has been a topic we've covered off a lot in the last six months from different psychologists and sports, mental health coaches and all sort of people. And it it has a different frame depending on who you talk to. What do you mean by career identity? So it goes back to the conversation that we were having earlier where I said it's, it's what you, when people ask you about what you do, how do you see yourself? So when I worked in corporate and then got to senior level, you know, I saw myself as a corporate executive. I was part of the DNA and I was used to working in corporate. That was my environment. I always saw myself as a corporate person and I really didn't have any vision of leaving to start up a business and then a whole raft of things happened which led me to this point and so there was an identity shift because hang on but I've always been corporate and now what am I do I run a small business am I an entrepreneur am I a facilitator am I a coach what does that mean because we label people and the labeling can be dangerous because it can mean that we box people so your career identity is how you see yourself and so if you look at people particularly in professions you know I'm a doctor I'm an engineer and so they're seeing themselves in a certain way in a certain light um and Hermenia Abaria, and I'm not—I did not pronounce her correctly, but she's a very smart lady who's an academic and does a lot of work in this space. What she talks about is that your identity shifts as you change roles, and so even as a leader, when you go from being a more junior manager to a more senior manager, there is a shift in that identity in terms of how you see yourself, how you behave, and if you don't readjust that 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 can cause issues for you in terms of not landing well in that role. So I, I, I often look at identity through a couple of lenses and I'll say to people, you need to know who you are, so how you see yourself because that's your version of your identity. But you also need to know how other people see you. And that's a mixture, mixture of reputation and brand. You know, it's all the how people describe you when you're not in the room. And if there's a mismatch between how you see yourself how other people see you and also where it is you want to get to, then you've got some real work to do. Well, this is great, Michelle. I'm conscious of your time. Just um, before we let you go, where where do people follow up on you? Where do they go to check out more about Michelle or grab the book? Where, where's the best hub for you? The easiest place is to go, well, they can obviously go to LinkedIn because I'm on LinkedIn, um, <laughs> or to go to www.michellegibbings.com and they can access both books. So I've got two books. There's Career Leap and there's also Step Up, which was all about how do you build your influence at work. Um, And you can sign up. I've got a weekly newsletter and I've also got a whole heap of free resources on the site as well. So there's lots of other stuff that they can get if they go to michellegibbings.com. It's such an interesting area, I think. There's so much change. The only constant right now is change. And I think this is a really important subject for us to get as much perspective on as we can to sit and, and just take the time to consider what the future looks like for our our working careers. So Michelle, thank you so much for taking time out. We know you have got loads going on in your world. So we really appreciate your time. The book is called Career Leap, How to Reinvent and Liberate Your Career. I'll put the details in the show notes. So um, it's been great. Thank you for your time. Lovely. It's been fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me along. The Mojo Radio Show. Mate, thinking about those statistics you were talking about at the top of the interview, I, I go 32 years or something I've been in this industry and I counted during the interview, I've had five jobs. And what, what were the statistics you were talking about? Well, 17 employers yeah. and five careers. But when you say five jobs, you've really had the one job. You're just doing it for different people. Yeah, that's what I mean. What, five jobs for different, yeah, for different people doing the same thing, yeah. What they're saying is five careers. 
Wow. So you would go from being a sound engineer and go into movies and be a grip and then you go and buy a service station and then you go and blah, blah, blah. So you'd have five different careers and 17 different employers. And see, for you, you started out, you had a job and you've stayed in that job for three decades. Mm. But they say now, even the guy who runs Harvard said that the information that the students are learning in year one will be redundant by year four. Wow. And if you go back to Kyla Colbin from Singularity University, who was our guest during season four or five, fantastic interview, when I said to her, what would you recommend for a student coming out into the workforce and they want to go to uni, what would they study? She said it doesn't really matter as long as they learn the disciplines of learning, love learning, and anything they learn in there in terms of skill sets, which could be analytics, deduction, arguing a point uh, as a lawyer working from both sides, as an accountant working with numbers, even if they don't want to be in that industry, they can apply that then to whatever they do want to do. That would be a good use of university. So that's how these numbers are changing. So, I, so you've had a career. Mm. Well, today's employees won't have careers. And as Jesse Itzler talks about, you'll be building a portfolio of work. So my portfolio is I did this, then I moved across to that, then I changed here, I did a career leap and started doing this. What's changed for you though is instead of going into a studio working for an employer, you've become a digital nomad where as long as you've got a laptop and a microphone, you can pretty much work from anywhere. So you kind of have morphed into this new generation of workers. So it's, it, it actually is a really interesting area. Yeah, it is big time, isn't it? It's funny. It's like, it reminds me of the old saying my, my father used to say, though, is um, jack of all trades, master of none. Sort of, that would be, you know, sort of the interesting way I'd look at that. Yeah, and if you look at one of the attributes of the people who are disrupting and leading in business today, one of the key attributes is they read widely. Mm. So that jack of all trades is you read lots and you read widely. Mm. However, you then pick out something that you want to be world-class at and then you deep dive into it. Mm. Mm. So it's kind of a depends and you take all these bits and you put them up on a whiteboard and say, here are the attributes of someone who is really, really good at what they do is you learn widely to apply it to something where you get really good at it. Mm. Interesting, interesting times ahead. God of Rock, thank you for this chance to kick ass. We are your humble servants. Please give us the power to blow people's minds with our high voltage rock. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Now let's get out there and melt some faces! The Mojo Radio Shows. Lessons in Rock. For a lot of us, Robbo, we will be shadowboxing. Oh. Oh. You can just turn an interview on a dime. You are uh, unbelievable. Come on, come on. <laughs> you don't need to take a long line with that one, uh, my friend. Uh, uh, you know, I was on holidays and it took me away to Marseille. <laughs> <laughs> that's, just, that's a stretch. All right. So 
our takeout song, our lesson of rock, gone but not forgotten <laughs> this week is from the Angels. You found a piece of an interview about the legendary frontman for the Angels, Doc Neeson. Take it away. So speaking of careers, I was back on our old employer's website the other week, Radio Triple M, and I came across this piece of audio from Buzz Bistrup, who was one of the founding members of the band The Angels, talking about their late frontman, Doc Neeson. Lola, can you just play that bit? Playing that now. He didn't drink, smoke, didn't take any drugs. He was uh, he was actually focused on being the front man. He used to run around the block, um, around the gig before we'd play, and would jump on stage, sort of huffing, puffing, sweating, ready to go. Whereas the band would be sitting around in the room, smoking and drinking, and and sort of we'd we'd walk on stage in a haze of all sorts of stuff. <laughs> And he would be, um, he would be pumping. So I don't know about you, but I've been to many Angels gigs over the year, and I n- never remember seeing Doc doing laps of the block. But I tell you what, it would be a pretty amazing sight. But he always, always came on stage mm-hmm. dripping wet. Oh, totally. Do you know? I remember going to one Angels gig, and Doc had broken his leg, and he was sitting in a barber's chair at the front of the stage with a microphone singing, rocking this barber's chair backwards and forwards and just about tipping into the crowd. He was amazing. That's very Axl Rose. Yes, it is. (laughs) Now, the thing about Doc is, and there's probably some science behind this, but there's an old saying that says, act the way you want to become until you become the way you act. And I think that this is a great lesson of rock because we can use the same idea when getting ready to present, I don't know, say you're presenting to a client. You step away from what everybody else does, which is you, you arrive just in time, you race in, you hope the laptop works, you haven't rehearsed it, you haven't visualised where you wanted to go. Or it could be the same as you getting ready for a footy match or even getting ready when you entered the home to your partner and your kids after a big day at work. Are you ready? How do you want to show up? And that's what Doc was doing is running around the block, getting himself ready to show up. And the thing with Doc is when he walked on stage, and this has been a thread for the last couple of seasons through the show, this word identity. And Doc used to create an identity of who Doc Neeson was when he stepped on stage in front of the microphones. And I reckon we can create the same identity whether you want to step into the gym or you want to be at work or at play or with your relationship. And the other thing about Doc, and I I think that identity thing was a big thing because there's no doubt Doc Neeson had an identity because as soon as you say the name, people in Australia particularly will be able to visualise Doc on stage. The other thing is that Doc was super smart and he's very learned. Does it make me sound learned by saying the word learned? It does. It makes you found, sound very um, credible. Learned. <laughs> Credible. Incredibly, it makes you sound incredible. <laughs> but I remember working with the band, working with the Angels, and every time we went out, Doc would want to go and visit a school. Mm. Now, there was never a guitar in sight. They never performed All Doc wanted to do was sit in front of the kids and talk to them and answer questions. So there was a number, he was deep and there was a lot of levels to Doc, but we have this identity in mind. He prepared for that identity, but then away from the microphone, he was a very deep guy who cared deeply about children and children's education. 
So I think that's a classic lesson of rock and a great gone but not forgotten for this show. Mm. If I threw it to you to say we can have any angel song to take us out, what would you play? Hey, Lola. I'm listening. The penultimate angel song has got to be Shadow Boxer. Playing that now. We're out. Do not hold your breath. You'll find it exceedingly difficult and it's a danger to life. Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.